0: Good morning and welcome to Mountain Radio Astronomy. This is Sue Ann Heatherly and this is the July edition of Mountain Radio Astronomy. We're taping actually on July 4th for this month's edition because we have a very special guest to introduce you to in just a couple of minutes. So happy July 4th everybody, even though you're listening a week later. Uh, I'm with Amy Lovell today. Amy is a professor of astronomy at Agnes Scott College which is in Atlanta, Georgia. And she went to undergraduate school there as well. She got her PhD at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and I was reading your bio, Amy, and it said that that's where you learn to love comets. And since we're going to be talking today about comets, and in particular, Comet Temple 1, I'm going to start out by asking you why you love comets. What's special about them?
1: Well, comets are really interesting because they are little bodies in the solar system, but they're very large phenomena. And comets can uh, contain the gases and the, the dust and the ices that were preserved from the very beginnings of the solar system. And so by looking at the comet, it's kind of like um, looking at your roommate's freezer to see what it is that's been uh, lurking back there for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> the comet is what's in the freezer of the solar system, and it can tell us what's, um, what, where we came from and what our past
0: is. Okay. I've heard of comets described as dirty snowballs. Why are they described like that? What are they made of?
1: Well, the comet is, um, was formed from little particles that were dust particles that contained ice or that um, accreted ice when it was in the early part of the solar system. So the a Dirty Snowball model is one where the—this is hard to do without visuals—where <laughs> the, um, the ice is collected— together. And and then uh, they were just kind of frozen in the outer reaches of the solar system. And as they go along elliptical orbits around the sun, when they get close to the sun, then the ices will lift off and, and form what we see as the coma and the tail of the comet and the things that we think of as a cometary phenomenon. But the comet itself is just a little icy blob. And that dirty snowball was formed way back when, when the planets were forming. And these were just the chunks of the solar system that never got formed into planets. So... Probably what's in the comet is the same thing that's in Jupiter, the same thing that's in the sun, the same thing that's in Saturn and on the Earth to some degree. And that's what we'd like to know is what were they like then because they've been preserved all that time. So the dirty snowball idea is that the... um, Little chunks of uh, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen that formed together when the solar system was forming accreted on pieces of ice and, and chunks of dust, silicates and those kind of things, just like the stuff in our rocks here on Earth. And as it formed together, the ices were trapped among the little chunks of dust. And then when they get heated up by the sun, the gases escape, and then all that's left is the dust. And actually, it lifts off some of the dust with it, too. So that's when you, see, when you see a comet, you see two things. You see a dust tail, which is the reflected sunlight from those little chunks of dust. And, you know, not like the kind of dust you find under your furniture, but dust that's just like little flakes of rock, almost like sand. And then um, the gas tail is the kind of bluish glowing one that you see usually next to the to the dust tail. And that's um, fluorescence, just like the kind of light you see from a neon light or the kind of light you see from your fluorescent lights in your house.
0: Okay, so not all comets get close to the sun, do they? Are there comets out there that don't uh, come in close to us?
1: There are lots of them. Uh, Most estimates say that there are somewhere between 100,000 and a million comets uh, way out in the outer reaches of the solar system. When I say the outer reaches, I mean. 100,000 times further than the Earth is from the Sun, so really, really, really distant. And occasionally, some gravitational perturbation or just a really long orbit will, will bring one of them in. But the number that we see in the inner solar system are really, really a tiny fraction of what's out there. And most comets we'll never see, because in, in one human's lifespan or even in a 100-year period of scientific inquiry into comets, then we've seen only a tiny little fraction of what's really out there to be seen.
0: I suspect people remember Halley's Comet that passed by, I guess, in the 80s. 86. 86 was the last time, and it has a period where it comes nearby of about 76 years. Is mm-hmm. that right? So this is a comet that, that goes back out into the outer reaches of the solar system, I guess, and then comes back in. How does that work that we only see it once every 76 years?
1: Right. Well, on an elliptical orbit, an object moves more quickly as it's closer to the sun. So um, when it's zooming through the inner solar system, it does so in about a year or less and then the other 75 years it spins pretty far from us. I'm not sure how far out it goes. I know that it goes well beyond Saturn's orbit and um, that's why it's very difficult to see because when it's not fluffy and it's not making all of the um, ice sublimate into gases, it's really hard to detect a comet because even Halley's Comet, which is a big comet, it, um it's about the size of a major city or smaller, and to see a dark blob in space that's that small is really difficult. And you can see in the night sky when you see Jupiter, it just looks kind of like a star, and it's an enormous planet. So if you can imagine trying to see a little dirty snowball right. <laughs> that far away, it's pretty hard.
0: Okay, so when the comet gets close to, us, to the sun, or any comet does, you, you use the word sublimate that the... Uh, that produces the tails, the two tails that you might see with a comet. And tell the folks what sublimate means.
1: Okay, sublimate is is like evaporate, but instead of going from a liquid to a gas, it's going straight from an ice to a gas. Um, you've seen sublimation if you've ever um, experienced dry ice. You see dry ice, and and the uh, ice goes um, without turning into a liquid, straight from from the solid dry ice into um, carbon dioxide vapor. This happens um, sometimes in your freezer if you've ever left ice in the ice trays too long. After several months, the ice is pretty thin and small because it's, it's never melted inside your freezer. It's been below the freezing point the whole time, but it's sublimated. And um, a lot of frost-free freezers have this problem because the ice cubes will <laughs> sublimate in your freezer. So it's a phenomenon most people have experienced, but it may, it may not be a term they've heard but it's the idea is the phase change from solid to liquid and gas but it just
0: skips the liquid phase and that's what produces the pretty tail that we exactly. can see and that's really about the only time you can see a comet with the naked eye usually right when right. it's close enough to the sun to produce a tail
1: and about the time the only time you can see a comet with the naked eye is not only when it's close to the sun but when it's also well placed uh, with respect to the earth They have to be close enough to us for us to see them. A comet can be close to the sun, but around on the other side of the sun or um, a good distance away, so we still can't see it. Comet Hale-Bopp, for example, which was uh, with us in 1997, it was unusual that it was further away from us than the sun is and we could still see it because it was such a large comet and so enormously productive. Um, that's unusual, though. A comet like Yakutake, which was here in 1996, was um, only 10% the distance between the earth and the sun, distance from us. And so we could see it very well while it was a good distance from the sun and, and nice and warm and,
0: and doing all that good That population. was a really pretty comet. It was gorgeous. A lot of people like hale better, but... Hyakutake was so big. I mean, it took up so much of the sky. It was really amazing here in Green Bank.
1: Yeah, when you have a good dark location, uh, you can't beat a good close comet with a nice long tail like that. hale was better for city dwellers because that was the only thing they could see in the light polluted skies, but in a good place like this, um, I would have to agree with you that Hyakutake was a better spectacle to see.
0: It was amazing. But you're here today, and in a few hours you're going to be using the Robert Seabird Greenbank Telescope to take a look at a a different comet, and that comet is called Temple One, yes, and you're looking at this comet at a very specific time for a very very specific reason and I thought maybe you could uh enlighten us a little bit about the deep impact mission that's providing you with this opportunity to look at Temple One. Tell us about the deep impact mission, sure.
1: The Deep Impact mission um, is a different kind of, of mission, it's a discovery mission, one of the um, NASA programs of relatively fast, less expensive missions, and the idea behind it was uh, instead of just passively looking at something, flying an orbit around a planet or landing on a planet and taking some, some observations from there or flying by a moon of Saturn or something like this, that this would be... Um, an active spacecraft. And the idea of the active spacecraft was that it was going to make an impact on the comet, literally, and um, fire a over 300 kilogram chunk of copper into the comet with the intent of making a big hole. And this is something that hasn't been done um, since we crashed spacecraft into the moon in order to try to simulate seismic activity on the moon to, to see to study the, mm. the surface of the moon. And that kind of active um, interventionist approach <laughs> to uh, to solar system study hasn't been done in many years. So that was an, a neat thing about the Deep Impact mission. And the idea is that we don't know a lot about comets. We have this dirty snowball model, but we can't ri- go right up to the comet and ask it, what are you made out of and, and how, are you, how do you behave? And really, we're restricted to looking at them when they're very far away. The tail is a beautiful thing, and, it, and it's, it's what allows us to see how the comet is um, is behaving and, and where the gases are going and what the gases are. But it obscures the nucleus, which is what we'd really like to know if we want to know about the origins of the solar system. So by making a hole in the nucleus, the whole idea is that we can see, pardon the pun, um, that we can see what is inside the comet underneath the, the surface and, and hopefully maybe unearth some new, um, some new materials. And so the, the impact, the whole purpose of the impact was to not destroy the comet, but to actually upset it just a little bit so that it would um, spew some new ice and dust and and, uh, some things into space so that we can see what it's made out of and um, something about its structure because if a comet is really solid like a rock, really cold and and hard like an ice cube, then um, it would be very hard to make a good sized hole in it. On the other hand, if it was like a pile of sand and really just a loose conglomeration of, of little particles then the impactor It'd be like dropping a rock in a bowl of flour. It would just kind of sink in and, and not have a big effect. And so the hope was that it would be somewhere in between those two situations, and that seems to be what we have with this uh, with this impact was that it made a good-sized hole. We don't know exactly how large yet, but it made a um, a good splash and uh, did release some new material and has been interesting and
0: hopefully will continue for the next week or so to be interesting to see. So, the, this actually happened, folks, uh, while we were sleeping, I think, uh, last night, but on July 4th, that this spacecraft that NASA launched, when, a year ago, or? Uh, it was in January. In January, January Okay, that it, it rendezvoused with the comet, it unleashed another little spacecraft mm-hmm. that powered itself into the comet yes. to blast a hole in there.
1: And it had cameras on it, as the impactor had cameras on it as well, knowing full well that they would be destroyed in the impact. So there were pictures taken as the impactor approached the nucleus. And that's important because we have only just a few spacecraft that have ever visited comets. And we've never had really close-up pictures, because it's very difficult to take a picture of a comet because it's spewing stuff into space and is likely to hit your spacecraft and destroy it. Well, the whole point of this spacecraft was to be destroyed, so there was no harm in throwing a camera on there just to see why it happened. And so we can see that the um, the nucleus of this comet looks a lot like an eggplant. And uh, it has an eggplant that some bugs have been uh, eating, eating, I suppose, because it has some craters on it. It looks not too different than pictures you might have seen of asteroids. But um, it's a little fuzzier because it has this um, outgassing behavior that is something that asteroids don't have. And so hopefully when this is all finished, if another spacecraft were to visit this comet, you would see the crater that was left by the impact, and it would look very much like all the other craters, just larger. Um, one of the estimates for the size of the crater was something about the size of a football stadium. Yeah, I read that. And I don't know if that's actually how large it came out, and we might not know for several days.
0: Well, one of the articles it. I read said somewhere in between a suburban vehicle and a football stadium. <laughs> so they've covered yeah. their bases there with the size of the hole. The name of the comet is Comet Temple 1. Is there any particular reason why this comet was chosen to blast a hole into
1: Oh, well, um, with any space mission, you have to take advantage of your opportunity. You have a launch window, you know when the spacecraft is going to be available, and then you kind of look through the solar system and see who's going to be in the right place at the right time. Um, You know, you have to choose your victims carefully. Um, And Comet Temple 1 was chosen because it had an orbit, which brought it close enough to the Earth that um, it would be a relatively easy flight for the spacecraft to get to it. But it was not in an Earth crossing orbit. So any damage that was done to the comet would never have any possibility of, of uh, sending debris to impact the Earth. We obviously don't want that to happen. And um, it just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Now, you mentioned Halley's Comet. It was uh, the very first comet discovered. And periodic comets are given numbers as well as names. So Comet Halley is Comet number 1. If you've ever heard of Comet Inky, it's Comet number 2. Temple 1 is Comet number 9 so it's been known for a relatively long amount of time has a well-established orbit which is very important for the ability to actually overtake it and fire an impact um, onto it because if it were were an unknown orbit um, it would be more difficult and we w-
0: we might miss and that would be very disappointing absolutely <laughs> disappointing but we're not disappointed because it happened i mean this thing blasted a hole in the comet that's so great i I don't have internet where I live in Durban, folks, so I haven't seen the pictures yet, but Amy's been over at the Science Center this morning printing out pictures for people to see, and I'm gonna go take a look after I'm done here with this interview. Well, you're here, though, to use the, the Green Bank Telescope to look at this comet. The, the crash has already happened. The collision has happened. Tell us, first of all, why radio telescopes can study comets, and then we'll ask you specifically what you're here to, to learn.
1: Okay, well, radio telescopes are, um, are uniquely placed to look at molecules, and comets are full of molecules because the ices are made of molecules, primarily of the atoms carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, those kinds of things. The most common constituent of a comet is water, just plain old H2O. It, there's lots of it on Earth, we're all familiar with it, but that's the problem is that there's lots of it on Earth. Our atmosphere is full of water, especially on a humid day, as we all know in the summertime those do get that way then um, it's hard to observe water from the Earth because it's hard to distinguish what's Earth-based water and what's comet water. So uh, what we're doing is trying to look at OH, which is what happens if you remove one of the hydrogens from H2O. It just becomes HO or OH, and then a free hydrogen goes floating off into space. And that process is that, Uh, a high-energy ultraviolet photon from the sun smacks into the water and separates the hydrogen from the H2O. And the OH we can observe in the radio, there's a a band about one gigahertz, which is about an 18 centimeter wavelength um, that we can use to observe OH, and that is well-placed to be used for the Green Bank Telescope to, to have a look at, and there are only a few radio telescopes on Earth that are large enough to detect a phenomenon this faint. This is one of them. We've been using the Arecibo telescope as well, but um, Arecibo can only look more or less straight up, and so we have to um, we have couldn't look at it after the early June. It was past the range of um, positions in the sky that could be observed from from Puerto Rico. So we have made the proposal to observe here during the during and after the impact. And there's a telescope. I believe there's one in France and one in Australia that are trying to do the same thing. And we're spread out all over the Earth with the hope that. Uh, Whatever interesting happens, one of us will see it.
0: That's right. Three three telescopes are better than one, and actually, there are many many telescopes taking a look from the ground.
1: Yeah, there was a huge coordinated uh, effort. There's um, a website at at JPL that has uh, collected the names of the collaborators. Anybody who has achieved telescope time for this um, for this event, and I think every major telescope uh, was really involved in some way in this impact and there were people all over the globe um, observing, people are observing right now from uh, places in Europe and Asia I think and the uh, people in Hawaii have pro- probably finally gone to bed because <laughs> they, uh, they were up all night, sur- surely observing there. And people were sending email to an, an email exploder that was going to all of us on the list just to say, hey, this is what we saw, this is what we didn't see. And um, those of you who have, uh, who have the next shift on the other side of the earth, please look for this because we think this is going to be interesting or don't bother with this because we didn't see anything.
0: And you might concentrate your efforts in other directions. That's really great. I like that that so many people were actually talking to each other and sharing what they found already. Now, as you said, you're going to be using the Green Bank telescope. You're going to tune the telescope just like you tune your radio dial. And you're going to tune it all the way up to 1665 megahertz on the radio dial. So it's a little bit above your FM or AM folks. You can't quite get there. And you're hoping to see radio waves at that particular Frequency that will tell you that OH is there. Is that right? Right.
1: Molecules have, uh, just like you and I do, have unique fingerprints. And if you use a spectrometer, then you can see what is it. A- the equivalent of the fingerprint of that uh, of that molecule, and so if we see a um, a pattern of of spectral lines in uh, in that frequency range, then we will know that that's coming from OH. And um, what we hope to see is um, by using a radio telescope, the other thing that is that is unique compared to what is done at other wavelengths, is we can see um, the different velocities in in the atmosphere of the comet in what's called the coma. And so the molecules that are coming towards us will have one velocity and the molecules going away from us will have another velocity. And this will be a unique opportunity to see that distribution of velocities in a situation when we know exactly how those molecules are coming off of that comet. In a typical comet, there might be an active region on the surface, there might be four active regions on the surface, or the whole surface might be active, and you don't know because you just get a snapshot of it that's kind of blurred from a distance. In this case, we know that most of the emission we're seeing is coming from a particular hole in a particular place on the surface and that's uh, a really um, important constraint on what it is we're trying to do to understand how the comet's behaving. So the OH tells us not just how much OH there is, which is which is related back to how much water there is, which is, of course, what's important because that's what the comet is mostly made out of. But it also tells us how things are moving in the atmosphere of the of the comet. Are they coming off fast? Are they coming off slowly? Are they coming off in all directions? Are they coming off straight into, you know, just like one narrow stream? Or is it all spread out? And so that's something that is a unique contribution
0: of the, the radio observations. Neat. That's pretty neat. Now, you, you did mention uh, briefly as we were talking that that this comet was chosen for one reason because there would be no chance of of any of this debris that was blasted off the comet raining down on Earth <laughs> and causing <laughs> right. catastrophes on the Earth. So we want to make that totally clear. Nothing to worry about. Right, but you know we've we have seen the movie mm-hmm. named the same. It's called Deep Impact, and and. Um, that was a problem here on Earth in that movie, so folks, don't worry at all. Now, this comet is a comet that has a short period, right? Right. So how long does it take to make one complete orbit around the sun?
1: It's a few years. I want to say about five years, but I don't know the exact number. But it, it's very short. It's not long like Halley's Comet, and um, but it's also not just a short little year. It's a, a handful of years. and um, So it will come back to... Um, the same position it's in, na- in right now in another few years, and that's something else that's very interesting about this mission, is that this was a big investment on, on the part of NASA to, to make this mission, and the question is, um, will this hole that was made now shut down and, and stop becoming active and, and stop releasing gas? But when the comet comes back around to its closest approach to the sun again, will it restart. And, and will th- this be a gift that keeps on giving? Or will this just be a, a one-time uh, a one-time shot? And that's something that'll take a number of years to, to find out. And probably we'll know over the next week or two how things are playing out and whether this is going to shut down pretty
0: quickly or whether it's going to keep effervescing for quite a while. <laughs> that's great. And it's a good thing that it has a five-year period instead of 76, because that means you can come back and look at it in a few years yourself. That's right.
1: Yes, that's that's not an onerous amount of time for uh, one scientist to to come and make a follow-up
0: observation. Well, a lot of folks think that, you know, you're going to be using the telescope in just a a couple of hours and that I ought to be able to come visit you in a couple of hours and find out exactly how much OH is in the comet and, and what's going on with the comet, but that's not really the case, is it?
1: Well, it takes quite a while to process the data. It it is a pretty complicated process with a radio telescope. We don't have an eyepiece that we stare through. We don't have something that we can just look at and go, yep, it's there, here's a photograph. Um, So it does take some time, um, but if there's something very strong there, if the emission is very strong, we should see that pretty quickly, probably within the first hour or two. If it's weak and we have to wait for the... The entire day, I'll, I'll be on the telescope, starting from about four in the afternoon, and and continuing until about midnight. And um, it may take all eight of those hours to make a detection. We'll have to wait and see. Um, in the extreme case that really there's not much gas there at all, and that the OH signal is very weak, it might take um, two days or even three days to um, to detect it. The nice thing about the the OH is that once it's split apart, like I mentioned with the with the water, the H two O molecule being split into H and OH, um, that Water molecules will live, before they are destroyed, they will live for a day or two in the coma of the, of the comet. And then the OH um, will live for another day after that. So we should be able to detect the effects of the impact for at least three days. Mm-hmm. And so that gives me time to add up all of my signal if I need
0: to. Does that mean it's possible that tomorrow's observing will be more fruitful than today's?
1: It's possible. I imagine just because of the fact that you're going to have released a a whole lot of of gas at the moment of impact that um, probably today will be the the strongest, but it is possible that it'll continue to increase as the water that was released is subsequently split up into creating OH. So ask me again in a week and (laughs) I'll tell
0: you. (laughs) Okay, I definitely will touch base with you again. I'm uh, so pleased that you could join us a little bit before you start your observing run, Amy, and really good luck to you. We will check back to see how it goes.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: All right. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. And if you'd like to learn more about the Deep Impact mission, you can go to www.deepimpact.jpl.nasa.gov where you can find the latest images from the spacecraft as well as press releases and other information as it comes in from observatories around the world. Next we'll talk with Kara Rose to find out what's going on at the
2: Science Center. Hi Kara thanks for being with us. Hello. Tell us what's happening. Well the summer season is now halfway over and we've been very busy with general visitors, workshops, and events. We've hosted StarQuest, a large scale star party it was held last week. We've hosted Gear Up, a student development program for ninth graders entering high school. And we have several additional professional and student workshops scheduled through the remaining weeks of summer as well. Neat. I guess uh, I should say that we'll be,
0: we'll be relieved when we successfully complete rest of our student and teacher workshops this summer some of them we haven't done before so we're and that
2: keeps you very busy charting new territory i would like to take this opportunity to update listeners on upcoming august events offered to the public the science center does continue to offer the star lab programs every thursday at 2 p.m they are open to the public it's a planetarium program it's limited to about 15 guests So we do recommend that reservations be made in advance, and a fee of $3 per person applies. We also offer a high-tech tour through the working areas of the observatory, and those will be held on the second and fourth Wednesdays in August. It begins at 3.30 p.m. Again, there's a charge of $3 per person and limited space, so we do recommend reservations. We do have a monthly star party scheduled for August 27th, which is a Saturday. It is free of charge, it begins at dark, as usual, and again, if cloudy skies prevail, it does have to be canceled. And on Friday, August 5th, the monthly film fest will feature Galileo's Battle for the Heavens, which is a PBS NOVA presentation, and I believe it's about an hour long. And this film night's free of charge, and it begins at seven. And people can... um
0: order pizzas and have some supper before the film if they like, is that right?
2: That's right. Uh, The local folks have been coming over generally around 6 and having pizza with their families and friends. It's good to pre-order your pizzas on on movie nights. It's helpful to the cafe staff if you order by 3 p.m. that way they can have them ready for you when you arrive. Great. And I wanted to give a quick reminder of the Science Center hours. We're open 8:32 8.30 a.m. through 7 p.m. during the summer. The guided tours are, again, free of charge. They're offered at the top of each hour, 9 a.m. through 6 p.m. The Starlight Cafe hours are 11 a.m. through 7 p.m. If you need to inquire about any of the events or the tours, you can call 304-456-2150. And as always, we look forward to having the listeners visit.
0: All right. Thank you very much, Kara. That about does it for us today. Thanks for joining us. And I'll see you next month on Mountain Radio Astronomy.